getting close to the end of the book of James. Last week, uh, we had a passage that really talked about just the, the astonishing and just the beautiful work of God. We've unpacked everything that it meant about what, when God says he's a jealous God, what that means, that he, God, is our husband, uh, and he is a jealous God over the suitor that keeps coming to call on us, which is sin and death and Satan. And how God, in his jealousy for us, refuses to let us go, but crushes Satan, delivers us from sin. Uh, and then in that process, we're able to see how beautiful God is, um, and it produces in us a deep and meaningful repentance. Really what we talked about last week. And so now James goes, moves on from there. Now what? In the, in the, in the, in the wake of this deep and meaningful repentance, what does that mean for life? What do we do from here on out? And he really kind of goes right for the juggler and starts talking about money. Because money, uh, you know, Paul says, it's not, we just have this in our family worship. We talk about money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Putting money over above God really is an indicator of what it is we're living for. So James is going to talk about money and about livelihood, about enterprise, and about whether or not those things are oriented towards ourselves and self-indulgence, or whether those things are oriented towards worship of God and oriented towards love. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you please would stand if you're able, and let's read together uh, and listen intently together to God's inerrant word from James chapter 4, starting at verse 13. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, the directness of it. Lord, we love, we thank you and we praise you that you are a God who loves enough to warn, loves enough to speak to us truthfully and directly, uh, and loves us enough to have come and died for us and stood in our place and received from your own hand the judgment which we deserve so that we might inherit the beauty of eternal life and the new kingdom that you have promised us, Lord. And so we pray that you would help us to see both of those things today. The truth of your warnings, uh, the beauty of Jesus, and ultimately, Lord, we pray 
And seeing those things together would help us to reorient our lives a little bit more so that we would live for you instead of things that will soon be rusted or corroded or rotted out. We pray this in Jesus' name for the same. Please be seated. I'm not a big team sports fan guy. Uh, I'm into like, I mean, other sports, but usually individual type of sports. But one thing that you know always kind of fascinated me when I was able to go to Chargers games when we had a when we had a, a, a football team here uh, was was the tailgating parties. Have you ever, have anybody ever been to a tailgate party? And I mean like the people, not like, not like the guys, you know, the, the guys that just have like a, you know, cooler in the back of the pickup. I mean the people that were committed to it. People that had like multiple RVs, showed up a day early, set up multiple spaces, put up a dance floor, disco ball, you know, wet, you know, a bar, just like literally like lamped up and set up to party for days. Uh, in the parking lot of these big sports events, right? Um, it's impressive, right? Even if it might be a little bit excessive, right? To see uh, something that it's really fun to do as an add-on to the big game, to the main event, to the big show, right? We can all appreciate that, even if you're not really into team sports, even if you're not into tailgating, you can appreciate uh, the effort put in, in. But what if... What would we say if, if, if someone got so into tailgating that it didn't even, they didn't even bother with the main event? They didn't even bother with the game that was right after. It really became so much about the tailgate that they just completely forgot the game itself. In fact, they didn't really even care about it. What, what would we say about somebody who like had Super Bowl tickets and then sold them so that they could put on a better tailgate before the show and didn't even go in to see the game? Uh, we would say, that's foolish, would you not? And you would be right. But even more foolish is how we kind of do the same thing with God, right? And I mean, I'm talking about everybody, and when we get into this, we're going to see that James is an equal opportunity destroyer today. He's talking about Christians, he's talking about non-Christians, and he's talking about how we all have this tendency to treat this life and the things in this life as the ultimate event with little or no thought of eternity, of the big show, of the main event. And he's, again, talking about everybody, Christians and non-Christians. And the newsflash is that he gives us is that this life is the tailgate party. This life is the pregame show. Uh, it is the tailgate party for eternity. It is the waiting room. It is not the main event. Uh, and this passage is really all about this, the utter foolishness of sinfully amassing wealth and, and all the enterprise and pleasures of this age and just spending all of our limited, finite time here indulging ourselves and uh, and our desires and our comforts with little or no concern with God. Uh, with little or no concern for God. And so here's the big idea. He says this, and this is what we're going to look at. It says, don't make money greater than God. 
Because the beauty of the kingdom is coming faster than you think. That's what he says. Don't make money greater than God because the beauty of the kingdom is coming way faster than you think. So let's break that down one piece at a time. Don't make money greater than God. All of our, this is funny age that all kids go through. If you've got kids, you know this. Our kids went through it. They go through this stage in their development where they think that if they hide their face, that they become invisible and you can't see them. If they can't see you, they start to, they believe that, um, they believe that you don't really exist anymore and that you can't see them, right? It's super funny. Our kids all went through it and we'd like tease them about it. We'd like, you know, put our, you know, put our hands over our faces and pretend, you know, you'd play along with it. Like, oh, we're pretending, you know, you pretend like you can't see them either. And they were amazed by it. And, uh, it's a funny stage the kids all go through. But even funnier stage is the stage that adults go through, usually between the ages of 18 and 108, where we tend to believe that since we can't see God, He's not really there, and He's not really watching us, and He's not really, uh, we don't really consider Him to be like a real thing in life. And this causes us to do the very thing I was just talking about, to basically live life without giving much concern or consideration to God. And in this passage, James talks about two specific groups of people. The first passage from 13 to 17, the end of chapter 4 here, James is talking to believers, right? How do we know this? Well, James, throughout the whole book, James never calls believers rich. He almost, he, it's almost like he saves that word, you rich, is like this derogatory term that he lays out to unbelievers and then describes them as such. But in this passage, there's are people who should be concerned about you know, the will of God, um, who are concerned about the things of God. These are God's people. These are Christians, part of his church that he's speaking to. Uh, and he never calls them rich, but it's obvious that they are. Why? They're going to a foreign city to trade, and they're going to that foreign city to do trade and create a profit and come back. That takes what? Capital. I mean, there's probably not a bunch of us that are starting multinational corporations this week, right? Why? Because that takes a lot of money. Same thing with these people. These people are wealthy, wealthy Christians. And what is it that they're doing? Why does he call them out? What's the sin here that he's calling them out for? He's saying, essentially... He's saying, you guys are laying out all your future plans. You are claiming to have this ultimate control over your own life and over the future and over providence, which you do not have. Uh, and you're boasting about all of your future success uh, with trade and profit without any real consideration for the will of God in all of that or the providence of God in all of that, or the sovereignty of God in all of life. In essence, what are they doing? They're just kind of going about life and doing their business as if God wasn't really there. And the second group of people, and here's where I think it, it got kind of startling for me as I as I put this together this week. The second group of people in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, these are unbelievers. 
These people are also rich, but they're not Christian. Uh, and what are they doing? They're doing basically the same thing that the Christian rich are doing, right? He really, in one verse, he kind of calls them out on the essence of it. In verse 5, he says, you're living on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, kind of the same thing that the Christian unbelievers are doing. They're, you know, they're living in a, in a way, uh, and they're living in their own lives and planning their own futures as if God doesn't exist. Uh, they're not giving any lip service to God in that sense, but they're living in that way, in the same way as the Christians are. However, James highlights three differences. And the first one, first one is in the rich in chapter 5, he highlights, James highlights the outcome or the necessary consequence of living in that self, uh, in, that, in, in that way of self-indulgence. And that is when you live for self-indulgence, when you're all about getting it for yourself, that necessarily somewhere down the line ends up in the disadvantaging or the oppression of other people. But here's the thing. I think one thing that James is saying is that even without that, even without that oppression, living life and engaging in enterprise without any concern for the will of God is still evil. Is still evil. And then second thing he calls out is the second big difference is for the Christians, the rich Christians in chapter 4, he calls them out on their sin, really calls them to repentance and calls them, uh, admonishes them, right? But when we get to the rich in chapter 5, there's no call out. There's no admonishment. It's just straight up Old Testament style prophetic condemnation. This is your reality. If you continue like this, weep and mourn and howl because the, the riches and the wealth and the power and the privilege and everything that you are fighting and scratching to get are the very chains that will wrap around your neck and carry you into the depths of shield. The very thing that even we as Christians can be culturally so tempted by. And the third difference is the big one, really. The third difference is why? Why the difference? Why does, why does James not really call out, uh, you know, the downline sin of the rich Christians? Why does he only admonish them versus the unbelievers? Why does he call out and lay on the table their sin of oppressing the marginalized and the weak of society and just lays out their condemnation for them. Why does he do that? What's the biggest difference between those two groups? And really the only difference that we could point to is Jesus. Jesus is the only difference between these two groups. That was the thing that hit me like in the forehead with a hammer while I was studying through this this week. It's the difference between Jesus, having taken the judgment of all those things upon him, versus you taking all the judgment of those things upon you. It's the whole difference. It is the gospel message. It is the very thing 
that Jesus came to do, to live for us, to die for us, to take upon himself all of that judgment so that being in God, God can admonish us and call us to repentance and remind us of who he is and what he's done for us versus nothing. Condemnation. Straight up. Straight up condemnation. And so James really, you know, he is brutally in awe and, and super clear about why you might want to make God more important than money and enterprise and self-indulgence in your life in that negative aspect. But I think he also gives us an even better reason. And the better reason is a positive one. Second point, the better reason is because the kingdom is coming faster than you think. I have this theory about time that uh, we all know that time, um, we've all, maybe you've all noticed this, but the older you get, the faster time gets, right? Faster time seems to go by. Truth? I, re- I remember my, like, I can, I can remember still back to my kindergarten class, like the year I was in kindergarten. It seemed like an entire eternity. Within the pie, you get into your 30s and things start to blur out, and then you get into your 50s and it's just falling through your fingers faster than like sand. Why is that? I have this theory that it's because it has to do with percentage of life lived. Literally, your experience of time conditions your future experience of it because of how much time you've already lived. What I mean by that is when you're five, a year is 20% of your whole life, which is a crazy long time. But when you're 50, it's only 2% of your whole lived life. So just bang, it goes by like that. Am I, am I lying? Ain't lying. Amen. <laughs> the older you get, the faster time flies. And it really, the older you get, and the faster that time flies, the better grasp we have on how fast time goes and the fleeting nature of this life. And you know, usually when we think about that, a lot of times we'll think we'll think uh, that in terms of like that's sad or things are going so fast or I wish I could slow them down or maybe even think of them that you know they think that that's really bad. But James says, no, that is great. In fact, it's full of hope. Listen to what he, he says in this chapter in verse fourteen. He says this. He says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. He's affirming that. The time is literally flying by. And if that was all he said, if that was all there was to it, then maybe it would be sad. If we were headed towards annihilation or we were headed towards uh, some sort of Christless future or whatever, that would obviously be bad or sad. But that's not what's happening, right? He's saying he hints at it this week and he says it straight up next week in the next passage at the end of the book, but he says Jesus is literally standing at the door ready to enter the stage of history. Jesus is literally at the door ready to bring in this entire new kingdom, this entire new life, this entire new existence, new resurrected, spiritually powered bodies, a a whole new creation that is that is so indescribably wonderful that whenever the Bible tries to lay it out, it has to use analogy and metaphor uh, 
just to give us the slightest mental foothold into how amazing it's going to be. And even then, if it's consistent with how the Bible uses analogy and metaphor, those little mental footholds are just a pale, pale representation of the reality of what glory is going to be like for us. And so what does that mean for us? Well, I mean, first, let's say it, if you're an unbeliever, that's bad. That is uh, decidedly bad. Uh, And everyone I know who's not a Christian has this sense of a clock ticking. And it comes out in all weird ways, racking up regrets of the past, wishing they could redo life, feeling a fear of impending death and the shortness of time doing all sorts of bizarre things to like create this false impression of youth that goes on forever everybody can feel that clock ticking as they consciously suppress Paul says in Romans 1 the knowledge that they have of impending judgment, that one day, like it or not, you're going to stand before God and account for your life. And at that minute, you have two choices. Either Jesus is judged for you or you are judged for you. No plan C. So for unbelievers, James is saying, this is bad. However, it doesn't have to stay bad. Why? Because for us, what that means, time flying by, that means... It is flying by into eternity, flying by into glory. The faster time goes, the better. The faster, it's like I'm being on a long car ride, you know, and the first year in the back, the kids are like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And you get used to it or you do the trip a thousand times and it goes by and it flash. You get to the destination, the destination we are headed for. The faster we can get there, the better. You know? Jesus says this. This is my favorite, one of my favorite quotes. Jesus in John 16. Jesus says, off the cuff, he's like, a little while. (laughs) A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, in a little while you will see me. And then he goes on from there to explain what he's talking about is, uh, in his perspective, in just a little while, we're going to be with him in glory. From his, from Jesus' perspective, When you step back from the chaos of life, when you step back from the mortgage payment, when you step back from the hardness of relationships, when you step back uh, from the stress of being paying the bills, when you step back from the chaos of social media, and you look at things from Jesus' perspective, he's saying, time's flying by. Any minute now, time is flying by. And we're going to be with him soon. Sooner. Sooner than we ever could imagine. Paul says the same thing. He says this light and momentary trouble. This life. He says it doesn't even come close to comparing with the weight of eternal glory that we have waiting for us. So the time is flying by. uh, And the comparison between the trouble that we have now... And the things of this world are so inconsequential to the weight of glory and eternal life that we have coming that these things aren't even 
any consideration on. You should just take this and just be like, Bum. and I remember, I remember, I remember distinctly, like the moment that this hit me. It wasn't soon. It wasn't long after I had gotten saved. I was 40 years old. I had just spent, you know, my entire adult life chasing every foolish thing you can imagine. <laughs> you know. Uh, I was, you know, I was super cool, <laughs> super popular, uh, and it all went bad, right? <laughs> I tell my kids all the time, I'm like, being cool, not going to get you anywhere, not anywhere, right? And then I put Robbie's hair up in a mohawk and said, <laughs> maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit, okay. But it's not ultimate, right? Anyways, 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 I remember like coming out of that, and I was 40 years old, I was kind of beat down, you know, the end of it was really bad, and, and, and I was just so grateful to be alive, honestly. And my, my, the thought I had was, I'm going to, you know, in 30 years, maybe 40 years, I'm going to be dead. It's only, I've only got 30 years of this, of Christianity. And at the time, I was really, I had convinced, my, I was pretty convinced that, you know, I would never get married. It's pretty much going to be like like Paul, just like me and Jesus, and he was going to, you know, we are going to be doing, you know, it was going to be like trudging for the kingdom, you know. But I was thinking, but I thought to myself, 30 years, only 30 years, I could totally do that. I could totally do it. Especially compared to the 40 years right before that, you know, almost this almost seemed pleasant. It seemed super pleasant, right? I mean, and then and then and, you know, fast forward, don't even, you know, it wasn't even like that at all. God, and me and Nisa were just sitting last like last night watching the kids play, and we're like, we're like, man, look at what God has done for us in this, you know, what has God done for me in this 15 years now that I've been walking with Him? He's taking every nasty, dirty, destructive, miserable thing that I fought so hard to keep out of my life. And replaced every one of those things with something infinitely better in the here and in the now. And at the end of it, I remember being newly saved, thinking, heaven, okay, great, sure. But this is so wonderful. You know what I'm saying? But at the end, really, which is coming quickly, is this... uh, it's this new reality that like outdoes every science fiction movie, every novel, every every imaginative creative work of glory and beauty and perfection and peace that we could ever, ever, ever come up with is waiting for us at the end of this time that's flying by. And I thought to myself, you know what? If that's true, I can go all in. You know what that means? When somebody goes all in, it's from like the world, world poker tour, you know, those guys, you'd see them play in poker. And whenever they got the unbeatable hand, you know, sometimes they would bluff, but whenever they had that unbeatable hand, they got the royal flush, they play super chill, they wait till, you know, and then at one moment in the game, they take all the chips on their table and just go, push it all on, they push it all in, one hand. They go all in with everything they've got on that unbeatable hand. And that's what James is saying. That's what he's going to get to at this end. When he's talking about considering God's will, he's saying, look at your hand. Look at the hand that you've got in Christ and the opportunity that you have 
to be a part of the expanding kingdom, why would you take any of that money and bet it on the losing hand? Why would you hold any of it back? Why wouldn't you put it all in? And that's what James is getting at at the end. He says, this is the last point. We shouldn't make money greater than God because the kingdom is coming faster than we think. And so, we should be people who go all in. We should be people who go all in and make God greater than everything else. We should make God greater than everything else. When James says, you know, he says what you should do is you should say, you know, if God wills, we will go to such and such a city, right? Well, here's what he, here's what he doesn't mean. Uh, in 1095, Pope Urbane II uh, made this rousing speech to all the, the, the feudal kings and, and cardinals in, in Rome making a case for why they should go and on a war of conquest and take back Jerusalem from the Muslims. Uh, and he made this stirring case about the pilgrims. Really behind it was conquest. Uh, and in, in one moment, in that moment, he upturned a thousand years of, of Christian tradition of, of being about presenting the gospel and turned the church into a war machine. And everybody got all ramped up and the whole crowd was all shouting, God wills it! God wills it! There's this great movie called Kingdom of Heaven about the Crusades and there's this one character, like whenever some despicable thing happens, you know, he's like, God wills it! What is that a picture of? It's a picture of the fact that all too often, what do we do when we think about God? We, we read our own selfish ambitions into it, and then we claim it's God's will and ask Him to co-sign it for us. Or, uh, another thing this doesn't mean is James isn't just saying that before we do anything, we should say, just say, well, if God's will, if it's, you know, if God wills it, we'll go to the city. As if we could just do whatever the heck we want and just, you know, go in and, you know, say, well, if God would shut me down, you know, God's going to shut me down. And if God, if it goes through, then that's God's will. If it doesn't, it's not. He's saying there's more, it's more, what he's implying is more than that. Not just paying lip service to it, not co-signing our own selfish ambitions, not uh, just putting the if God wills tag on the end of everything that we want to do. He's saying we as God's people should be taking the time to study and learn and understand what is God's will for us as a people for how we go about using our time and treasure and talents, our resources, and how should we go about engaging in enterprise in the world in a way that honors Him and expands the kingdom. That that should be our starting point and then we should then go out and do what our best what our best estimate is, right? Paul says, same thing. Paul says in Romans 12, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be transformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you by testing, may discern 
what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When he says, I appeal to you based on the mercies of God, that's, I think, one of the most loaded statements in the whole New Testament. Because what he's talking about is Romans 1 through 11, basically, where he just laid out this case that you've been completely saved by the work of Jesus. You've been delivered from sin and death and Satan. You've been given the Spirit of God. You've been given a new life. You've become inheritors of the new creation. All these promises are true of you. And because now of all of those mercies, it behooves you to start living in a way that is in accordance with that kingdom. Study the word and understand what is God's will. Uh, Paul, and then Paul says this in, in Corinthians. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation of Jesus with gold, silver, precious stones, or with wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. The day will disclose it. That's the day. The day of judgment. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. It's kind of this picture at the end day, that at the judgment, we don't really know exactly. I don't know. I'm going to study this a lot. I'm not exactly sure how a judgment's going to go for Christians. I know it's essentially a vindication of us as God's children. I know it's essentially uh, uh, the time when God presents us as his adopted children. And Jesus says, uh, and Jesus is um, presented as, as our savior, as our mediator, as the one who has been judged for us. There seems to be this sense where there's going to be, uh, you know, what we've done in life is going to be laid out. And everything that we've invested into the kingdom, everything that we've done that's, that's, like, that's gone all in for God's kingdom and not for ours, is going to be lauded in that judgment. And everything that we did that was all about us and self-indulgent and selfish is going to be burned up. There'll be nothing that comes from that. I don't know what this reward thing means. I don't know. I've been part of theologies where that is blown way out of proportion. Uh, and I've been a part of churches where it's made, it, no one, you know, it's denied. But Jesus says, there's reward in that. And we're not sure exactly how that is. But the, the big idea is this. He's saying, Paul is saying the same thing. Don't be foolish. Don't live your life like it's, you know, that like the, it, like it's a, the never-ending tailgate party. Go all in with everything that we have for the advancement of the kingdom because as Jesus said, that is storing up treasures in heaven. It's the only thing that's going to last. If given our beliefs in Jesus and the new kingdom, it's the only, it's the only thing that makes sense with how we would live our lives. <sighs> In the end of the story, we saw this this story. I saw this this movie. Me and Lisa watched it together about different families who, you know, you know, done different things. And there was this family that was a uh, guy was I, I think the guy was a corporate attorney. His wife had a corporate job, had a million dollar home in Orange County, 
They were living the good life in Orange County, and as longer they lived it, the emptier and emptier it got. They had young kids, and they'd made this decision. They were going to sell all their stuff. They sold their house, and they started a foundation. They went to another country and started a foundation where they adopted and cared for uh, uh, disabled children and abandoned children, kids that people had just like left out to die. And in the beginning, the mother's recounting this story in the beginning about how hard it was and how difficult that transition was. They had all this comfort and then now they were in all this struggle and their kids were with them. And the mother, she like broke down in tears and she was like, what, what kind of mother does that to her children? And I like identified with her in that moment, you know, and the craziness of it. It can be so easy to think that, that you're taking your children out of the real good life and putting them in this chaos. But then fast forward 10 years, and now they have this, this house that's, you know, over there in this other country, and they have all these kids that they've taken care of, that they raise, that they place in homes, that they get and they put out for adoption. And, and, and much like my life <laughs> prior to my conversion, right, where every foolish and destructive thing that I chased, God took away from me and gave me something so much more beautiful. The same thing was kind of true for them. And that's what their, their testimony was. They were like, we wouldn't trade what we have for anything, anything we used to have. We, we were like, we're like, we feel so grateful that we were able to escape from that. And we have this life that is so full of joy and peace that we didn't even know existed, you know? And I think about that story, and especially I think about the way it is now, you know, the way things are getting, how convoluted and confusing things are, and just how much stress and anxiety can just involved in everyday life, the way we live it, you know? And I'm thinking, you know, maybe God's trying to tell us something with all this instability and all this craziness and unsurety and not knowing who's telling the truth and being pretty sure that both sides, the left and the right, are lying through their teeth to us. Uh, just not just the confusion and the tension of it all. <laughs> the thought of like doing something else becomes more and more appealing to me, you know, as as we go along. However, <laughs> there's some of you out now out there going, "Ogre, here goes Rob again, talking about moving to China." Blah 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 blah. Uh, it's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, I mean, if you want to, I think you should. There was a point in time when me and Nisa seriously considered it. After my like third year in China, we were like, is God calling us to move to China? And we decided, no, he's not. Because we thought, even though things are getting hard here, we want to stay where the fight is. One of my favorite quotes is from one of Napoleon's generals. He says, always run for the sound of the guns. And, and for me, going all in kind of means that. And so we're committed to staying here. But I think well, we have an opportunity. This is what it all means, down to brass tacks. We have an opportunity as a church and as people to begin the process of kind of like recreating, re re reconceptualizing what we think church is in America and in the West. In, in, a, in a broadly Christian culture, where Christianity is kind of the base of it, 
there was a long time through, you know, the 18th, 19th, 20th century where Christian, where churches kind of became like country clubs where Christians would come and commingle and congregate and learn, you know, and, and, be, and network with one another. And, uh, and, and it was really all about that. However, we're moving into an era where churches are becoming more like they were in the first century, where we are literally, for, we are forward operating bases. Uh, for the kingdom of God, military bases, uh, behind enemy lines, where we have the opportunity to take everything that God's given us and go all in for the kingdom. Uh, go all in for Jesus, knowing from our past and our, our experience with Him already that anything that we may give up for ourselves, for him, he will replace with something infinitely better. Amen? That's my vision for our church, uh, and I'm excited that we get to be a part of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is astonishingly beautiful, Lord. It is a wake-up call. It's true, Lord, a lot of stuff that I do, a lot of stuff that we do is really culturally conditioned. We, we kind of go about life thinking about all kind of things of not giving a whole lot of thought to how this might fit into God, to your will. Uh, and Lord, we want to be faithful. Every one of us here wants to be faithful with everything we have to you. Uh, and yet we are sinners. And yet you have given us your spirit. So we pray... Lord, uh, we thank you for all that you've given us. We pray that you would help us to reconceptualize what the church could be in the time and the place and for the people that you've called us to witness to. And we pray that we would, um, that we would know that you are good and that we would trust that going all in for your kingdom uh, is the best possible move that we could make, Lord. So help us to do that in measured and responsible ways, taking care of our families and our uh, employment and everything that you've called us to do in the world. But help us to do that, Lord. Help us to be a people who goes all in for you, to glorify your name, for the salvation of your people. Uh, and we pray this in Jesus' name for his sake. Let's stand and uh, let's stand and sing praises.